the early 1970s, Rochester, New York was rocked by the murders of three little girls. As the public and police debated whether the deaths were connected, many noticed a strange coincidence. All three girls had double initials, CC, WW, and MM. Not only that, the towns they were found in also matched their initials. Coincidence or the work of a methodical serial killer? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. Tonight's episode was suggested a while back by Jaden, so thank you for the case idea. I think I've mentioned it before on the show or maybe on Insight, my previous podcast, that I am a big Agatha Christie fan. One of her books is called The ABC Murders, and the premise of this book is that a killer is targeting people based on their initials. Alice Asher was killed in Andover, Betty Barnard was killed in Bexel, and Sir Carmichael Clark in Churston. I won't give away the ending of the book, though it has been out for 84 years, so I'm sure the Statute of Limitations for Spoiler Alerts has run out, but I will say it's because of that book that this case first caught my eye, but I didn't really dive into it until Jaden recommended I cover it. Before we start talking about the similarities in these cases, let me lay these out individually so we have a basis for our discussion. We're going to start with 10-year-old Carmen Cologne, a bubbly little girl living with her paternal grandparents in the Bull's Head area of Rochester in 1971. Her mother lived nearby, just about a 10-minute walk away, and it's not entirely clear why Carmen was living with her grandparents. Her mother did have younger children in the home, so it may have just simply been a financial or space decision. Carmen spent the first five years of her life in Puerto Rico until her parents split up and her mother moved her to Rochester. Even in Rochester, Carmen had trouble learning English. Her family only spoke Spanish in the home, and Carmen had an intellectual disability. Her teacher said she could speak and understand English better than her family seemed aware of, but she was still enrolled in the English as a Second Language program, and she was in the special education class. Carmen was a very energetic child. Physical education was her favorite class, so she could just go run around. Her classmates took on a protective relationship with her, knowing that she had this disability. And she wasn't bullied. She was more embraced and maybe even coddled a little bit by these classmates. And everyone in the neighborhood knew who Carmen was because they would see her out, happy and bubbly, walking with her grandfather on errands, and actually, honestly, usually running ahead. 
At home, it was a little bit of a different story, though the family later denied that this was true. An uncle did tell the local paper, the Democrat and Chronicle, that Carmen was not really well-liked by the aunts and uncles who came and went from her grandparents' house. And an aunt was quoted as saying that they would leave her behind when they would do things like go to the park. But her grandparents were doing the best they could keeping up with the little girl. They did live in a rough neighborhood, so they had a pretty strict rule that Carmen and her cousins who would come visit could only play inside the fenced yard. And if Carmen wanted to go anywhere in the neighborhood, her grandfather Felix would usually go with her. That was not common in the early 1970s. Ten-year-olds were given a lot more freedom than today, and going to the corner store alone would not be frowned on at all. No one would even blink at it. But Felix insisted Carmen be supervised more closely than that, though she was being given more and more freedom as she got older. So I'm not saying she never went to the store two blocks away by herself. It just wasn't a regular occurrence. On Tuesday, November 16th, 1971, Carmen came home from school and played outside with her cousins as usual. Her mother, Guillermina, came over to visit with Carmen's nine-month-old sister. At this point, Guillermina was in another relationship, and it was with Carmen's father's brother. I'm not sure if they were married at that point, but Carmen's uncle Miguel was also essentially her stepfather. At one point, Carmen went inside the house and heard her mother say something about how she needed to go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription for the baby. Carmen asked if she could go for her mother. Her mom hesitated to let her go by herself, but Carmen really insisted, and so she decided, okay, you can go. She gave Carmen the old prescription bottle, the prescription, and her Medicaid card. Felix didn't realize Carmen was heading to the drugstore, so he didn't follow her like he usually would. So this is one of those rare times that Carmen was allowed, unsupervised in her neighborhood, to go to the pharmacy, which was two blocks away. Carmen made it to the drugstore around 4.30 in the afternoon. She was told it would be a few minutes before the prescription was ready, so she left the prescription card and the Medicaid card there and left rather than just waiting inside. She never came back for the prescription. And when Carmen didn't come home, her family went out looking for her. Meanwhile, along Route 490 West between Churchville and Chilai, commuters trying to get home noticed a young girl running along the highway wearing just a shirt. She was naked from the waist down. Some saw a car going in reverse towards the child, and the drivers thought this was odd, but no one stopped. 
Those who came forward later gave varying reasons for not stopping. For one thing, they were all driving at 60 to 70 miles an hour. And so for some of them, they weren't really processing what they were seeing at the time. One man who passed by who did notice that the girl was naked from the waist down thought it must be a child whose parents were letting her use the bathroom by the side of the road. Another person said he went by so fast and the traffic was just too much, so he couldn't really pull over or turn around. Then another said that he was already past the scene when he realized that it was kind of iffy and there were cars behind him, a lot of them, so he assumed they were in a better position to stop and help if help was needed. In true crime circles, we talk about bystander effects quite a bit, and there could have been some of that in play. Now, bystander effect is sometimes misunderstood It specifically applies to groups of people, not just one or two people who witness a crisis, because when there is a group, we have a perceived diffusion of responsibility. That means that the more people that are there, the less likely an individual is to intervene because someone else will do it, maybe someone in a better position to help, which is literally what one of the drivers said. And then we also have this issue of social influence, and that is that we look to others to determine our own behavior. When you step on an elevator, why do you face the door? You do it because everyone else does it. If you walk down a sidewalk and someone is looking up and pointing, you turn and look because they wouldn't be looking for no reason. We are influenced by what people are doing around us. No one else was pulling over, so whatever was happening must not have been worthy of intervening. But there is another influence in situations like this, and that is how our brains process emergencies. Emergencies are rare. We do not come across them often, and when we do... Many of us find our brains trying to make sense of what we're seeing or normalizing it. I once almost drove past a flipped over car. As I was approaching where the car was flipped over, I remember thinking, how odd that car is upside down as I'm driving. Well, of course it was odd. It was clearly an accident. Thankfully, I was just leaving a parking lot, so I was already going slowly enough driving for my brain to catch up, and I was able to stop and help. Well, then someone else kind of drove up on where this accident had happened as the people are getting out of the car. Everyone was okay. And I turned to that person who had their window down, and I said, do you have a blanket? Because I wanted to make sure everyone was wrapped in a blanket. That's what you do. And the other driver said, I do, but it's sentimental, and kind of gave a hesitant, I'm not sure if I want to part with it. And then her brain caught up to the situation and what I was asking. And she was like, of course, oh my gosh, yes, I have a blanket. We were all just functioning a step behind. Now, if you are zipping by at 60, 70 miles an hour, 
How far down the road are you before your brain catches up? So when you're seeing a kid naked from the waist down on the side of the road, your brain is going to normalize it to say something like, oh, they must be using the bathroom, not, oh, they must have been abducted. I think in the age of cell phones, someone's brain would have caught up to them down the road and they would have called the police. At least I would like to hope they would have because this was not a child using the bathroom. This was Carmen trying to get help, and it would be the last time she was seen alive. At 7.30 that night, her family had exhausted all the possibilities of where Carmen could be, and they reported her missing. Because the police did not know about the people seeing her 15, 20 miles from her home, they searched her neighborhood extensively, since that's where she went missing from. Two days later, on November 18th, two boys were riding their bikes after school along a rural road in Riga, New York, which is 20 miles outside of Rochester. They saw what they thought was a broken doll lying against a rock. Again, here we are with our brains and emergencies. Their brains couldn't immediately process what they were seeing and tried to make sense of it by thinking this was a doll. But of course, what they saw was the crumpled body of Carmen Cologne. Based on the evidence at the scene, it was believed Carmen was killed elsewhere and her body dumped. Except for this being a seldom-traveled road, there was no other attempt to conceal her body. She was only wearing a purple sweater, her socks, and shoes. Her coat was found in a culvert about 300 feet away from where she was found. On autopsy, it was determined that Carmen was raped and beaten prior to being strangled and had likely been killed the night she went missing. Two weeks after Carmen's body was found, her pants were discovered by a farmer in his field. He had seen the news about Carmen and called the police. Where the pants were found, was within a few hundred feet of where the commuters had seen Carmen running along the highway, only giving more credence to those sightings. There was a massive uproar after these passerbys came forward to admit that none of them stopped, and maybe some of it's justified. But I have a hard time believing that 50 or 75 or however many people passed by are all cold-hearted jerks. I think we can be a little more empathetic towards those people when we consider the brain's response to crisis plus the bystander effect. If we understand and accept these things, and accept that it could happen to us, we're less likely to let it happen to us. We will see a situation and recognize our own thoughts, like, oh, I'm sure someone else will intervene. We will know that is bystander effect, and then we will step in. Basically, the only way not 
to be one of those people who drove past Carmen that day is to accept that we very well could be that person and to be mindful of it. Anyway, the police did ask the public for some grace towards these people because they did come forward, even knowing how bad this would make them look. And because they came forward, the police had a description of the car. Except, well, these are eyewitnesses, so they actually got a bunch of descriptions of the car. But it was eventually determined to likely be a Ford Pinto or a similar model. And this is notable because Pintos were new in 1971. That two-door subcompact style was fairly newly in fashion overall. And there was someone in Carmen's family with a fairly new compact car, her uncle-slash-stepfather, Miguel Colon. Police had already been leaning towards Carmen's abductor being someone she knew. She went missing off a city street around 4.30 in the afternoon as people were coming home from work. Rochester is not a small town. In 1971, it had nearly 300,000 residents. It seems unlikely she was grabbed and tossed into a car on a busy street with no witnesses. So Carmen was either lured by a stranger to get into the car willingly, or she got into the car willingly because she knew the person behind the wheel. About two or three months after Carmen's murder, someone called an anonymous tip line that had been set up and said that Miguel had come to him shortly after Carmen was found and said he needed to get out of the country because he did something wrong in Rochester. He first went to Syracuse, New York, just days after Carmen's death. Then he headed to Spanish Harlem, and then he went to San Juan, Puerto Rico. For those outside the U.S. who are not aware, Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, so it's not exactly out of the country, but it is farther outside the reach of New York, or at least Miguel thought. The police went down to San Juan to look for him, but unfortunately, the media had been tipped off and published a headline that New York cops were coming to San Juan to look for a murder suspect. So Miguel literally just went into the jungle and camped out until they left. But the authorities had a plan to smoke him out, so to speak. They took his mother into custody and put it out there that they intended to detain her until Miguel came forward. It's hard to say how much of this was serious and how much was theater, but it worked. Miguel contacted the police and agreed to surrender himself in New York in March 1972. Back in New York, Miguel didn't have much to prove his innocence. He failed a polygraph, and he had no provable alibi. The police searched his car, which was similar to witness reports from the highway, and they found hairs consistent with Carmen 
in the car, and they also found one of her dolls. The problem here is that there's plenty of reason to believe Carmen had been in that car before her abduction. He was a relative, after all. And it's not like her family had reported when she went missing that she had the doll with her. That would have been pretty damning, but that's not what happened. There are other explanations for her leaving a doll in his car. And they didn't find anything more incriminating than this in the car. There was no blood or anything. The car had been cleaned using detergent cleaning products shortly after she went missing. So it is possible if there was evidence, it just simply wasn't there anymore. The family did not believe Miguel had anything to do with this. His children, who are Carmen's half-sisters, have said he was very loving and caring, and the strain of being a suspect really wore on him over the years, and it may have contributed to his mental state at the time of his death nearly 20 years later. On February 18, 1991, Miguel and his wife were arguing when her brother Juan intervened. Miguel pulled a gun and he shot his wife in the arm and neck, and Juan was hit in the chest. They both miraculously survived. Neighbors called 911 when they heard the shots, and when police responded, Miguel stood in the doorway telling the officer to shoot him. After a short but tense standoff, Miguel put his gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. More recent newspaper reports that are covering Carmen's disappearance and murder and are looking back simply say this incident involved his wife. But reports from 1991, when it happened, say his wife's name was Guillermina, leading me to believe this was likely Carmen's mother, and the two remained together for nearly 20 years after Carmen's death. So obviously, she didn't think he murdered her daughter. After Miguel's death, the family was asked again and again, Did he, over those 1920 years, make any admissions regarding Carmen's murder? And they said he never did. And Miguel was not the only suspect. A tip led police to James Barber, a man who worked in a country club kitchen and was known to be in the Bull's Head area on the day Carmen was abducted. Like Miguel, James had left Rochester shortly after Carmen's death. He left so abruptly that he left behind a paycheck and most of his belongings at his apartment. Investigators learned that James was wanted in Mansfield, Ohio, on a warrant for sexually assaulting a 15-year-old. But here's the most suspicious thing about James in relation to Carmen's abduction. His work had an electronic punch card machine that the workers used to clock in and out. On James's time card for November 16, 1971, his time card was written in pencil 
rather than run through the machine, making it look like he forgot to clock in and out and had to amend the card later. Generally no big deal, except this happened to be the same day and during the same time period that a little girl went missing and was later found murdered. Frankly, it looked like James was trying to create an alibi. The lead detectives on the case were split in their opinions between James and Miguel being the more likely suspect, but in the end, neither had enough evidence against either suspect for an arrest. Like Miguel, James died years ago. If Miguel or James killed Carmen, it is unlikely her murder was connected to the next two we are going to talk about. Miguel is not a suspect in the others, which we will get into, and James was already out of state, never to return, 17 months later when the second double initial alphabet murder took place. Wanda Wachowicz was 11 years old and lived with her mother, her sister Rita, who was just a year younger, and then their youngest sister, Michelle, who was two. There is some conflicting reporting on if Joyce's boyfriend lived with them or not. But the family largely lived off Social Security death benefits after Wanda's father died at the age of 30 from a heart attack. Wanda was only six years old. She grew up fast, taking on a more adult role to help her mother out. Joyce herself had grown up moving from foster home to foster home, so she was doing what she could as a young widow to keep her family afloat on her own. It wasn't easy, and Wanda helped pick up some of the slack. She was a tough kid, she was pretty street smart, and she was known as the little red-headed leader of the pack among the neighborhood kids. Some reports say that, like Carmen, Wanda had intellectual disabilities, but from the reporting I've seen, she was considered an average student. The biggest issue was that she missed a lot of school. In the fourth grade, if you add it all up, she missed roughly a third of the year. So it wasn't lack of ability so much as the circumstance. On Saturday, March 31st, 1973, 11-year-old Wanda was walking with a friend near the railroad tracks, not far from her home, when a man came out of the bushes and chased them. The girls reported this to their parents, and they said that the man had big buckles on his shoes. One report said that this incident was reported to the police, but a search of the area didn't find anything. But other reporting seems to say it was not reported immediately, and it was only reported after what happened two days later on April 2nd. Wanda was doing what 11-year-olds do when she was playing when her mom, Joyce, asked her to go to the local deli to get some groceries for dinner, a pack of cigarettes, and a pack of diapers. 
This was a common errand for Wanda and her sister Rita. Sometimes they took turns going alone. Sometimes they'd go with a friend. Sometimes they'd go together. They would get the items, and the clerk would put the total on Joyce's tab, which she would later go in and pay. It was 5.10 in the evening when Wanda left for the deli, which took less than five minutes to get there on foot. She passed her school and about 15 houses on her way. As Wanda walked to the store with her shopping list, she ran into three friends who were also going to the store, but they were going to a different store, and it was closer than the one Wanda was going to. So they all walked together until the friends veered off to go to the other store, and Wanda continued on. Wanda made it to the deli and bought what she needed. It was quite a bit of groceries. It included dog food, cat food. There was tuna fish, milk, bread, cupcakes, soup, then the diapers, and then, of course, a pack of Pall Mall cigarettes. So it was a lot, but the clerk, Bill Van Orden, decided to try to fit it all into one paper bag to make it a little bit easier for Wanda to carry home. Nothing seemed odd with Wanda while she was in the store, except she did tell Bill she was in a hurry. No reason was given, but, I mean, she's 11. She may have just wanted to get back to playing. But it was also raining out, so she may have been in a hurry because she wanted to get home before a downpour started. Bill watched Wanda leave the store and turn north towards her house. Those who saw her leave put the time between 5.20 and 5.30. As Wanda walked home, the same friends who walked partway to the store with her were also headed home, but they were ahead of her. Normally, they would have stopped and let her catch up to them so that they could all walk together, but it was raining, so everyone was eager to get home themselves. The friends turned around a couple of times to see if Wanda had caught up to them or not, but she was just trucking along behind them. Then when they had passed the school, they turned around again, and they saw Wanda lean the grocery bag against the school's fence while she repositioned it to get a better grip. It was clear she was kind of struggling with this overfull bag of groceries. They walked on a little bit more, and the next time they turned around, which they estimated to be about a minute later, Wanda was no longer behind them. The only thing they saw that might possibly be significant, maybe, is that a brown car was driving along the road approaching Wanda when they saw her struggle with the groceries. So the thought here is that possibly she got into that car. Now, this was a 10-minute round trip, and once you account for time in the store, Joyce would have expected Wanda home by 5.30 or 5.40. After that time came and went, and then some, Joyce sent Rita out to look for Wanda, assuming she got sidetracked with friends. Rita made her way to the deli, stopping at the various friends' houses along the way, but no one had seen Wanda since she had left the store. 
By the time Rita made it all the way to the deli, it was about 6.45. Rita asked if Wanda had been there, and Bill said she had. He then showed Rita the receipt of everything she bought, and Rita decided that she should just buy everything again in case Wanda didn't get home in time for Joyce to make dinner. In Rita's 10-year-old mind, she's thinking Wanda's with a friend, and they needed the groceries, so let's just buy them again. When Rita came home with the second round of groceries and told Joyce that she couldn't find Wanda, Joyce called the police. Again, just like with Carmen, it was a few hours later that the police were called. While a search of the neighborhood began, Joyce decided to go to the deli herself and ask about Wanda. And Bill told her the same thing. She came in, she bought the groceries, she left. As the night wore on with no sign of Wanda, Joyce ended up being transported to the hospital to be treated for shock. And Joyce would have to be treated again the next day after Wanda's body was found. A state trooper was driving in Webster, New York, a small town northeast of Rochester, around 10.15 in the morning. This was his normal patrol, but of course he was aware there was a missing child. He saw something white down the hill from a rest area. He went closer to look, and he found Wanda. She was about 30 feet away from the road, as though someone had pulled over and pushed her body out of the car. It was about seven and a half miles from where she was last seen. Wanda was found fully dressed, but her autopsy revealed that she had been raped, and investigators believe that she had been redressed after death. Also, like Carmen, Wanda was strangled, but this time it appeared to be with an object, like a narrow belt. The Emmy also found a custard or pudding-like substance in her stomach contents that she would have eaten around an hour or two before her death. Her mother said she didn't have anything like that at the home, and we know she didn't buy it at the store. And authorities believe that, for some reason, the abductor fed Wanda. My first thought was that he slipped her a sedative in whatever he got her to eat, but I could not find anywhere that a toxicology report had been released or even referenced. So that's an unknown, and I'm speculating without having all the information. In an attempt to figure out where to best search for evidence and witnesses, the police flew a helicopter over the area from the store to where Wanda's body was found and took aerial photographs. Searches of these areas either yielded nothing or nothing that was reported to the media. Early on, the police had two working theories. One was that Wanda got into a car, but the other was that Wanda went into a house. We know it was raining, and we know she was struggling with the bag of groceries. Even though she was less than five minutes from her house, someone could have pulled over to offer her a ride the rest of the way. Or someone could have called from their porch 
to invite her in to wait out the rainstorm. Because Wanda was leery of strangers, street smart, and not a overly trusting child, authorities leaned towards her abductor being someone known to her, at least somewhat. It might not be someone close, but a familiar face that would have put her at ease. Honestly, kids have a lot of people like this in their lives. The parent of a kid on their baseball team, the custodian at their school, a substitute bus driver, or just a neighbor whose house she passed going to and from school. Wanda may not have really known the person, but they could have been familiar. A search of the area and looking into the backgrounds of people living along her path to the store did not lead anywhere. Joyce was also convinced that Wanda knew her killer because she said Wanda had a sensitive stomach and she could not eat if she was nervous or upset. That she ate the custard told Joyce that this was someone Wanda was comfortable with, though we also have to allow for the possibility that she was forced to eat it. And as for not getting into the car with someone she didn't know, Wanda was close to home and may have decided to, just this once, trust a stranger since it was raining and the bag was heavy. While I can definitely see why it is more likely she did know the person, we can't rule out the possibility that she was lured into a car. There was one suspect very early on identified, I mean within days. And the police were confident enough to hint that there was going to be an arrest over the weekend. All we know about the suspect was that he was a man who had been previously charged with endangering the welfare of a child, but there's been no other information released about who he was or why he was a suspect in this crime specifically. He was questioned for hours, just days after Wanda's murder, and given a polygraph, but in the end, his alibi checked out. He just wasn't the guy. In a repeat of Carmen's case, they set up the anonymous tip line that was manned 24 hours a day. They also put up billboards, which is something they did in Carmen's case. But none of the tips led anywhere. The grocery bag was never recovered, so there was some hope a person was seen smoking those Pall Mall cigarettes that Wanda bought when they were someone who usually smoked a different brand and that might lead to a tip, but it did not pan out. In October 1974, a local news segment called Eyewitness Crime aired the case, and 200 tips came from it. About a quarter of those were deemed worthy of follow-up. What happened in this case and in Carmen's case and in basically every other case was that the tips weren't always tips. A lot of the time, they were the caller's theory of the crime. Armchair detectives calling in with their speculation to the police. There is little the police can do to follow up on these since there's not much substance to them, or the authorities have access to information 
that discounts the speculation immediately, kind of like my speculation about the custard containing a sedative. The police have the talk screen. They know more than I do about what was in her system. So if I called in a tip saying the custard may have had a sedative in it, that's not really helping them. There's nothing they can do with that that they haven't already done. The upside in Wanda's case, though, is that semen was found and the evidence was preserved well enough that years later, a DNA profile was developed. But at the time, in 1973, there was little they could do with that evidence. Wanda's case was still making the front page of newspapers occasionally when the next girl disappeared in Rochester. Michelle Mayenza was just about to turn 11 when she went missing. Michelle was one of five children, and her parents were separated. Her two teen brothers lived with her dad, and she and her younger sisters lived with their mother. Michelle struggled at school socially. Her father said she was sensitive, the type of kid who just wore her heart on her sleeve, and that is heartbreaking because she was being bullied pretty much daily. Michelle was a lot bigger than her classmates. She was already five foot one at 10 years old, and she weighed 120 pounds. There were a few tormentors at her school that just made things miserable for her. The morning of November 26th, 1973, which was not quite eight months after Wanda disappeared, Michelle was crying before school. She did not want to go. And then once at school, one of the bullies upset her so much that she spent part of the day crying in the nurse's office. After school let out, Michelle's mother, Carolyn, showed up to pick her up and her sister along with a neighbor's child who she was babysitting. Michelle didn't come out when school was let out, and Carolyn was under the impression Michelle was staying after school, likely her sister said something. Michelle was being held back after school due to some interaction she had that day with a bully. Because Michelle didn't live far from the school, Carolyn decided that she could just walk home on her own when she got out of school. And when Michelle did not come home, Carolyn checked with some friends, but no one had seen her. So at 5.40, Carolyn called the police. Initially, there was some hope that she just had such a bad day at school. She was just kind of laying low, maybe like a pseudo runaway situation, but that she would come back on her own. However, because of what had happened with Carmen and with Wanda, investigators jumped right on this case, and they very quickly learned that Michelle did leave school late, and she was seen by her uncle walking near a shopping plaza. Her brother said years later that their uncle talked to Michelle and even offered her a ride home, but... This conflicted with earlier reports saying that he just saw her. Either way, it was believed that Michelle was going to the shopping center because her mother had lost her purse there a couple days before and Michelle was going there to look for it. 
From there, it seemed that Michelle, like Carmen and Wanda, just disappeared from a busy part of the city in broad daylight. Two days later, on November 28th, which was Michelle's 11th birthday, Eugene Vandewall, a fire chief from nearby Walworth, New York, was driving along a rural road in Macedon, which is east of Rochester. It was around 9 or 10 in the morning, and he saw, in a ditch along the road, the body of Michelle Manza. Michelle was found fully clothed, except for her coat, which was found about half a mile away. She had been raped, strangled with an object, possibly a belt, and redressed. Several fasteners on her clothes had been torn. Immediately on arriving at the scene, the investigators were completely stunned at how much this crime scene looked like Wanda's crime scene. They could not conceive that this was not the work of one person. It was pretty much identical, including the body appearing to have been pushed out of the car and just left. There was a woman who lived near where Michelle was found, and she said that she woke up early that morning to her dog barking. She heard some odd noises, including a car door slamming. But the autopsy determined that Michelle was killed the night she was kidnapped. So either she was kept somewhere and then dumped on Wednesday morning, or she was out there and just not seen for a day and a half, and the dog barking was at something else. Again, this was a less-traveled rural area, so it is possible she had been there the whole time. Partial prints were found, but they were not clear enough to help. There has been some preserved DNA evidence, but the latest reports I have read said that the samples are either too small or maybe too degraded for current technology. But the person who did this is almost surely the same man who murdered Wanda, and they have his DNA from that case. There are a few maybe witnesses in this case, like a classmate who said she saw Carmen in a beige sedan. There was another woman who called in and said she thought she saw Michelle take a ride from a man outside the laundromat. Unlike Wanda, Michelle was a trusting child, and according to her father, she was pretty easily swayed. So it's not hard to imagine that she would have gotten into a car with a kind stranger. There were two witnesses who came forward that police believe definitely saw the kidnapper. First, a man said he was driving down the road on the evening of the abduction, less than a mile from where Michelle's body would be found, and it was around 5.30 in the evening. He saw a man and a girl pulled over. The trunk of their car was open, and the motorist was under the impression that they had a flat tire or had broken down. When he pulled alongside to see if he could help, he said the man took a step in front of the girl, blocking his view of her, and then he moved to stand in front of his car's license plate. At the time, it just seemed a little awkward, but not alarming. But then the man raised his fist and took a step towards the motorist. It seemed like 
an overly aggressive move, but clearly the man didn't want help, so the guy drove off. A sketch was made based on what this motorist saw, and that brought in a flood of tips, to the point that it almost hurt more than it helped. Except for one tip. A woman called in saying that she saw the man in the sketch coming out of a fast food restaurant in a nearby town on the night Michelle went missing. The man had a bag of food and a drink, and he was walking towards a car that had a girl sitting in it. The reason this stood out amongst the sea of tips was that Michelle's autopsy showed that she had eaten a hamburger and onions around an hour before her murder, which was not something she ate at school, and it wasn't something she could have purchased on her own because she had no money. This tip made sense within the evidence. The man was described as a white man between 25 and 35 years old, about six feet tall, and weighing roughly 165 pounds. On December 11th, the motorist who saw the man called the police again. He had been driving and saw a car that looked like the one he saw that day, and he wrote down the license plate. The police pulled that guy in and questioned him. His alibi was initially pretty weak. He couldn't remember what he was doing on a random Monday three weeks before. But they pulled his phone records and found out that he made a few long-distance phone calls from his house at the same time Michelle was walking by the shopping plaza. And that's the time she was likely abducted. This man was released, and like with the other two murders, Michelle's case went cold. So, are these cases connected? Let's get into that now. There are some similarities here that we can write off as almost surely coincidences. For one, all of the girls were Catholic. That's not a huge surprise. Today, half the people in Rochester who identify as religious are Catholic. They did not attend the same parish, but I'm sure the police looked into any connections there. One thing that gets listed on the list of things they had in common was that they came from broken homes. And even if I was okay with the term broken homes to describe single parenting, which I'm not, but if I was, Wanda's mother was a widow. Carmen lived with her grandparents who were married. And while Michelle's parents were separated, they were both involved in her life. These home situations are actually not very similar at all. Now, there are similarities that may connect the cases. One is white fur that was found on Michelle and Wanda's clothing. There was also light-colored fur on Carmen's. This has been reported as cat hair, which would mean the killer may have used a cat to lure the girls to his car, or he simply owned a cat because we all know cat hair gets on everything. They were also all three girls who were 10 to 11 years old, so we can assume that is the killer's preference. They were all left in rural areas, but they were not concealed. 
they were all raped and strangled, and the time of day may be significant as well. They were all kidnapped in the after-school hours between 3.30 and 5.30. This would be someone who would have a reason to be away from friends, family, and work during those hours. Also, broad daylight hours when people are coming and going, so he would have to blend into the area. Now, for the most debated coincidence, is the double initials and where they were found. Wanda Wachowicz was found in Webster, and Michelle Mayenza was found in Macedon. To make Carmen Cologne fit, you'll see it said she was found near Chilai or near Churchville. But she was actually found in Riga. However, if you're coming off the highway, the two possible exits to get to where she was left, one says Chilai and the other says Churchville. So it's possible the killer thought he was in one of the other towns. Now, the location not matching her initial is not the only way Carmen's case stands out as a little different. And we'll get to that in a minute, but let's just stick with the initials for a little longer. Some people think this is just too much of a coincidence, and that would mean the killer knew the girls well enough to know their names and planned this in advance, including picking out dumping spots. He would have had to have been stalking the girls to wait for a chance to find them on their own. Along this line, the police did look into people who may have been in all three girls' orbits, like school employees. They pulled the records to see if any employee overlapped to all three schools. No one could be identified who would have knowledge of all three girls and their initials. But along the lines of this was just a coincidence thinking, here's something that doesn't come up often in these conversations. There was actually a fourth double initial murder of a child in Rochester in the 1970s, and it was definitely not linked. In April 1976, seven-year-old Michelle McMurray was left home alone and sleeping around 2 a.m. while her mother left to buy cigarettes at a bar. She ended up being gone for around an hour. When she got home, she checked on Michelle and the little girl was missing. A few hours later, little Michelle's body was found in a grassy area outside the apartment. She had been raped and strangled. There are some obvious similarities here to the other murders. We have the double initials, she was raped, and she was strangled. But there are also some big dissimilarities. This little girl had been taken from her home in the middle of the night and left nearby. Police were sure from the start that this had to be someone who knew she was home alone, which would mean someone who saw her mother leave. From preserved evidence, DNA was extracted, and it did not match the DNA from Wanda's case. In 2007, the police did match it to James Pressler, who was a maintenance man at the building Michelle lived in, and we know he was there that night because he was on the scene and questioned by police. 
He died of a heart attack awaiting trial. So Michelle McMurray is not linked to the other three girls, but she does have those double initials, and it's definitely a coincidence in that case. So maybe it was a coincidence in the other three, because like I said, there is reason to believe Carmen's case also was not linked. Some of the differences could be just changes in the killer's methods due to experience. Carmen was not strangled with a thin belt or a rope like the other two, but that could be just because the killer realized how hard it is to strangle someone and then changed to using an object. She also hadn't been redressed or fed like the other two, and that could be because she got away from him on the highway. He may have worried that the police had been called and he didn't have time to redress her. The one thing that stands out to me as the most dissimilar in these cases is where Carmen was found. Killers usually use dump sites they're familiar with, particularly in the cases where the bodies are left in more remote areas that you wouldn't necessarily stumble across. Wanda and Michelle were dumped east of Rochester, about 13 miles apart from each other. Carmen was found clear on the other side of Rochester, southwest of the city, about 35 miles away from the area Wanda and Michelle were left. There are also the two solid suspects in Carmen's case. The DNA does not match Miguel, and the other man wasn't in New York at the time of the other murders. So if one of these two suspects was the one who killed Carmen, her case is not connected. Personally, I think Wanda and Michelle's cases are most definitely linked, and I will put Carmen's in the maybe category. I think it's possible we are looking at two killers here, but I don't think it's likely we're looking at three. There have been other suspects in the cases that have come up over the years. Let's talk about them now. One was a Rochester firefighter named Dennis Termini. In January 1974, not even six weeks after Michelle's murder, he attempted to rape a teen girl. He was caught in the act, and the police chased him. When they caught up to him, he pulled a gun, and he shot himself. An investigation into Dennis showed a past of sexual misconduct and alleged sexual assaults. While his victims tended to be teenagers rather than 10- and 11-year-olds, his last attempted victim was, according to one of the detectives, very young-looking and appeared to be closer to 11. His car matched the vague description of one of the cars witnesses saw related to the three double-initial murders. There was a map open to Wayne County in his car, which was the county Michelle was found in. And of course, being a firefighter, he had a uniform and a badge. He could have gained the girls' trust so they would get into his car. We always ask ourselves why an apparent serial killer would suddenly stop, and here we have Dennis having killed himself after the third and final murder. In 2007, his body was exhumed for DNA comparison, and it was not a match to Wanda's case, 
though of course he cannot be ruled out in the other two where there is no DNA. Another suspect appeared on the scene in 2001 when Joseph Nasso was arrested for a series of murders in California in the late 1970s through the mid-1990s. Again, we ask ourselves, why did a serial killer stop? And the theory with Nasso would be that he never stopped, he just moved from Rochester to California. Of Nasso's six known victims, four have double initials. Even more shockingly, one of them was actually named Carmen Cologne, which is how the cases were initially linked. But all of Nasso's victims were adults, and DNA ruled him out in regards to Wanda's murder. So this, again, looks like more coincidences, not only with the double initials, but what are the odds that someone who lived in Rochester when Carmen Cologne was murdered would then go on to murder someone also named Carmen Cologne on the other side of the country? Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, was also looked at since he lived in Rochester at the time of the murders, and he sold ice cream, meaning lots of contact with young kids and could have been considered a familiar face. Of his 12 known victims, though, none were younger than 12, and the majority were 17 or older. He has denied involvement and has been pretty adamant about it. I generally don't take the word of a serial killer, but here's the thing. Bianchi was not a sophisticated killer. The second he tried to go it alone and not work with his cousin in 1979, he left behind so many clues that he was arrested the next day. That he got away with these three murders when he was younger and less experienced seems unlikely. DNA ruled him out with Wanda's murder, but like with everything else, we can't say for sure in the other two cases. And if you're wondering if they've tried familial DNA to link someone to at least Wanda's case, fear not, from the 2019 news reports I've read, it does appear like they're on it, and this isn't the only cold case from Rochester that they're looking into with familial DNA. There may be a solve in this case after all. But so far, the closest any of these cases got to court was a civil case filed in 2002. Discovery aired a TV show in November 2001 called Murder Reopened. It explored the murders, and while covering Carmen's murder, they flashed photographs of Miguel Colon on the screen. The FBI criminal profiler who was on the show said that Miguel dead for 10 years at this point, was the most likely suspect in Carmen's murder, and her case was not connected to the others. Except one of the pictures they showed of Miguel Cologne was of the wrong Miguel Cologne. The Miguel in the picture, very much alive and not at all connected to the case, sued for defamation. Since his picture was used five times in this show, while someone was saying he raped and killed a child. The picture was a 1967 pistol permit photograph. Though the photo was old, people did recognize him from it. His nephew even called him 
and told him that they were saying on TV that he killed a little girl. In the defense to this, everyone kind of passed the buck. Discovery said the Rochester police gave them the photo. Rochester PD said they got it from the county. The case ended up being tricky legally. The county did turn over the photograph of the wrong Miguel Colon, but they never said anything defamatory about him. They just filled an information request, and it was outside of their power to control what people did with that information. The TV show, who did say that this man was the prime suspect in the rape and murder of his niece-slash-stepdaughter, did not know they had the wrong photograph. It was given to them by the authorities and used in good faith. The negligence of discovery, the Rochester police, or the county in not double or triple checking this photograph did not rise to the necessary level to be considered defamatory, and the case was dismissed. The actual killer or killers of the girls would be, if alive today, in his 70s or 80s. It's possible he is dead, and the familial DNA search will not lead to a criminal trial, but it would lead to answers for the girls' surviving families, something they very much want. And for Miguel Colon's daughters, they're hoping this may clear his name. I will be discussing your theories and thoughts on this case as I usually do in my weekly live stream. You can find it on getvocal.com or you can just watch Facebook Live through the Crime Lines Facebook page. It is Thursday, 8 Eastern, 7 Central U.S. time, and I have a special guest for this one. Josh, the host of the podcast, True Crime BS, is going to be on to discuss this case. He specializes in covering the cases of serial killers and spent a lot of time looking at cases to see if they were linked to the serial killer Israel Keys. So I'm looking forward to having him on. You guys also are free to ask him any questions about the cases he covers and his podcast experience. But that live stream is for the armchair detectives in us. If you have actual information on the murders of Carmen Cologne, Wanda Wachowicz, or Michelle Mayenza, you can call the Monroe County Sheriff's Office tip line at 585-753-4175. It is long past due for these families to get some answers. Thank you for listening to Crime Lines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crime Lines Podcast, Twitter at Crime Lines Pod, and Instagram at Crime Lines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at charlieinkc. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 